0: Hello and welcome to episode 162 of Page One, the Writers Podcast. I'm
1: Tarek. I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And we've got a great range of past guests there, from authors to screenwriters to comic writers to video game writers and more. So please do go and check our past episodes out if you haven't already. Uh, But we've got a great guest this week.
0: Yeah, we do indeed. We're chatting with the wonderful Juliet E. McKenna, who I think I would describe as a powerhouse of an author looking at her list of books here. 15 epic fantasy novels she's written several novellas countless short stories and kind of you know we're talking sci-fi steampunk alternate history yeah um and putting the writing to one side she's the judge for arthur c Clarke for the james white award she's been shortlisted for the british fantasy award and the british science fiction award for best novel you know a uh, pretty impressive resume yeah, i think you look i think
1: that. so definitely uh, you know, a very experienced and, and well-known oh, uh, yeah, and well-liked author. And her latest book is The Cleaving, which is a sort of feminist retelling of uh, the Arthurian legend, which is, and we discussed this a bit, you know, it's always interesting mm-hmm. revisiting these stories that, you know, have been told a lot of times and you sometimes wonder, is there a fresh take on this? But obviously there is if you if you think about it in the right way, as Juliet has yeah. uh, here.
0: It's interesting because we're at that point now where, a lot of people are looking back on older works and they're saying, you know, like Rodale's books was mm-hmm. the latest one, I think, and people are saying, you oh, know, is it is it acceptable for the language or the focus or the characters nowadays? And, and I think it's there's that debate of do you censor it, do you edit it, what do you do? And I think... This is an interesting technique of saying, you know what, leave it as it is, but we'll we'll do another version of it and mm. focus it. We'll make it make it a bit more modern, focus it a little bit differently, and it's almost a whole different. It feels like a whole different book, think, a whole different story when it's told from a different point of view.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we we talked to her all about that, and we talked to her. You know, she's got some great advice on sort of what authors should watch out with, for with book contracts. She tells us about. A particularly bad experience she had with a with a publisher for one of her books as well so it's a really interesting chat so um we'll get straight into after a quick advert for a writer's notebook but before we do i just wanted to remind people that next week as this episode comes out that is the weekend the first weekend in june is the chimera festival in edinburgh science fiction exactly. fantasy and horror festival lots of great authors going to mm-hmm. that and we're going to as well.
0: More importantly, we're going to. Who my the authors? Yeah.
1: And we're doing a live recording of page one with the brilliant R.J. Barker. So um, if you are in Edinburgh and you want to come along, then do just head along to the Chimera website and you can get a ticket. You do need a ticket, but it is free. Uh, and you can come and watch us uh, speak to R.J. And I think it'll be a, quite an interesting chat because R.J. seems
0: like quite an eccentric character. I yeah, think yeah. He,
1: he's... he's uh, it won't be a cam interview I don't think put it that way Um, but no we're really looking forward to it and it'd be great if you wanted to come along Um, but we'll get straight into this, this week's episode now on
0: with the podcast
1: the blank page to some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head so how to overcome that fear well we all know the best advice for a writer is write Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
0: But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read, or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. screenplay a comic or any other kind of story we truly believe that when you use it it will help you get to the main event writing your story so we hope this helps
1: we can't wait to read what you come up with
0: and remember every story starts with page one
1: did you always want to be a writer
2: um no um i don't think the sort of possibility really ever occurred to me. I've always been a great reader. I learned to read when I was three years old, not because I was any sort of child prodigy, but because my older brother is two years older than I am. So he started school at age five. And you know, those sort of snapshot memories you have from when you're a little kid. Yep. Um, I have a very vivid memory of sitting on the sofa in the lounge with my mum and my brother going through the Ladybird Reading Scheme, Peter and Jane books, and sitting on her other side and sort of peering over to see what was going on because this looked really interesting and that's how i learned to read and back in those days this being late 60s early 70s Mm. ancient (laughs) um school libraries and public libraries um you would find books of myths and folklore and legends and fairy stories and the narnia books and um, Bill Badger's books and all sorts of um, fantasy on the same shelves as you know R.J. Unstead's History of Britain for Children. So history and fantasy and folklore were all just different aspects of the same fascinating stuff mm-hmm. um, that there was to read as far as I was concerned. But I don't think I actually started to think about writing probably until I was at university. And I actually started creating narrative, if you like, because I started doing Dungeons & Dragons.
3: Mm -hmm. Nice.
2: And um, I started playing Dungeons & Dragons. And fairly rapidly after that, I started DMing Dungeons & Dragons sessions. And I was playing with a group of people. There there are two, broadly speaking, two different approaches to rules in any sort of gaming, whether uh, I've done live action while playing as well. And you have the people whose attitude is, well, if the rules don't say I can do it, I can't. And then you have the other sort, which are all the people I've been uh, playing with, whose attitude is, the rules don't explicitly forbid it, I can (laughs) give it a go. And when you're dealing with people like players like that, what tends to happen is you can have constructed a wonderfully intricate, detailed, beautifully crafted session for an evening's gaming and they'll want to go 180 degrees in the other direction. Mm. And they'll have an excellent reason for going 180 degrees in the other direction. And, you know, they will basically lay out all of these excellent reasons, such that, as the DM, you're thinking, OK. <laughs> and so you they party head south instead of north. Um, which means that if you then have to dm on the fly you have to have a good solid grounding in your world building you have to know the broad strokes of what towns are where and the underlying economy and where the bad guys are and where the good guys are and the likely problems that they're going to face because you can't just have n number of uh, encounters with bandits because that will make for a very repetitive (laughs) spring evening um and When you created a good, solid depth and breadth of a world like that. And um, as I say, uh, the other thing I started doing at university was live action role playing. Mm -hmm. And again, fairly rapidly, my husband, my now husband and I started running our own LARP club with, again, a very detailed, broad based um, setting. And different people would write adventures in that and we'd run weekend events. And you can't really create something, things like that without, in your idle moments when you're doing the washing up or doing the ironing, stories starting to occur to you. Mm-hmm. When I started writing them down was when I was... Um... A, a bit. I, well, I I wrote what I was confident was going to be the definitive blockbusters fantasy masterwork. <laughs> Absolutely sure of it. You know, my only concern was, you know, if I got two really good offers from different publishers at the same time, <laughs> gosh, how would I handle that? Um, I was in my early 20s. Um, and I wrote, as I say, the definitive blockbuster fantasy masterwork was what I thought. And if it had ever been published, it would have had the been roughly the dimensions and weight and literary merit of a housebreak <laughs> um because it went the round of agents and editors and came winging back with um thanks but no thanks slightly skewed uh, 19th generation photocopy compliment slips and um, this was in the day where you know you are talking 500 pages of manuscript thudding onto the doormat yeah,
3: yeah
2: yeah you know, none of the none of this email will <laughs> argue so and I sort of oh yeah, you know, obviously, clearly, the world is not ready for my genius yet. And then I had my first child, and I was at home with the boy, because uh, I worked in uh, personnel management, and basically, I'd gone. I worked for a national company. The sort of company, it was the sort of job where I could go into work and. You know, have you got your toothbrush in your handbag? Yes, right, good. You need to book yourself a pool car on a hotel because you've got to do disciplinary stake on Stoke-on-Trent tomorrow yeah. morning. Right, okay. So, you know, not really a suitable job to combine with a small child. Mm-hmm. And also, I was at the sort of salary level where if I'd gone back to work, every penny I earned would have gone on childcare. Yeah. And, and bear in mind, this is probably the most fantastic thing you'll hear in a long time. Back in the day you could run a mortgage on one salary yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah as i say we we going back a good few years so basically uh, rather than pay it's, rather than work flat out to pay somebody else to raise the child my husband and i did the family sums and basically i stopped working and motherhood is very rewarding and very fulfilling and can also be incredibly dull um so i was reading library books on a fairly regular basis and um yeah some of them were really not very good so i started to think you know i bet i could do better than this so i decided i dug out the definitive blockbuster fantasy masterwork and started tinkering with that (laughs) i also when the boy was about a year old i got a part-time job in our local branch of ottakers and I started to see how the book trade really works from the inside, from the retail side. And my goodness, that was an eye-opener. That really showed me I really, really needed to up my game. I started to go in to hear um, authors talk at library sessions, library events, things like that. And again, I started basically, because this again is well before the internet, started anywhere I could find out more about the book trade, publishing, writing. You know, I went and found ways to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wrote another version of the definitive blockbuster fantasy masterwork. <laughs> and having had our second child, um, it uh, even then working part-time in the book shop became economically unviable. I'd have actually ended up paying £10 a month more than I earned. <sighs> um, so... I started writing it and it went out to agents and editors and came weeing back. But this time it was coming back with rather different sort of rejection slips, which were saying things like, oh, you know, strengths in the world, building like what you're doing with dialogue, you know, um, not convinced by the character's needs more, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things, one of the scary things is how close that book actually got to being published because it went to the editorial committee of one of the big publishers and it got voted down by three to two. Oh,
3: Ooh, very so close. close
2: so close but my goodness i am so glad with the benefit of my <laughs> five years plus hindsight that it didn't get through because i that would have been a two book deal and that would have been the end of it because when they sent the manuscript back they sent the readers' reports, and to this day, I do not know if that was a genuine error because writers are never supposed to see them yeah. because they are merciless. <laughs> or somebody somewhere in that office thought, you know what? If she we give her a really, really short, sharp shot,
0: Man, I would, that maybe, maybe that's horrible, isn't it? That's, she'll that's fuck up her ideas. In-depth views you don't necessarily ask for, is it?
2: Well, yeah, but I'll tell you what, it's what I needed. I mean, you know, certain... certain, This is, you know, 30 years ago. What what sort of stuff is this? Oh, some of the sentences are burned into my (laughs) (laughs) memory. Believe me. Um, Well, again, from one of the earlier rejection slips, when I was actually getting more feedback, one of those had said, there is nothing to distinguish this book from the six other perfectly competent fantasy novels that have crossed my desk this week.
0: Oh, God.
2: So that was a sort of... Okay, I need to think about that one. And the reader's reports were, I say, were absolutely brutal. If the author's lost interest in her central character by about halfway through, why should I carry on? <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Oof. And the thing is, they were right. And once I'd got over the being terribly upset because um, they were being so mean, and I'd actually thought, you know what, uh, yeah, by the time the younger son was sleeping enough for me to start to feel bored again, um, I got everything off the shelf and read it, and with a sort of you know the, the perspective that distance lends, mm-hmm. you know, I read these things through, and I thought, you know what, mm, they're right. And by this time, one of the things that one of the events I'd been to was a crime writing conference, um, and there'd been a talk by one of the commissioning editors for one and uh, one of the big publishing houses in London. Mm -hmm. and what she was talking about was how every publisher is looking for the same but different they're looking for books that they can market and sell and again having worked in book selling that made a lot of sense to me as like so and so and so and so and so um but with something else something extra bringing something new to the party a new twist a new idea a new perspective
1: that's interesting because we often get you know, you often hear that they want they want something new, but then you hear about people that are mm-hmm. are, are trying to take risks or, or do something different, and it obviously is too different. It's not. Yeah. It's 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 not actually what they're wanting, as you say. It is. It, they want a slight a slight slightly different take same on but something different. that already exists. Yeah. Yeah. Same but different. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And at that stage, I was reading a lot of crime fiction. Um, I've always read. Right across the genres, and this was when the independently minded female private eye was coming to the fore. uh The Ivashovsky, Kinsey, milhone Kate Brannigan, and I was reading a lot of those, and I thought, you know what? How would that sort of character, a woman who lives life on her own terms and is n- is not defined by her relationships with men, how would that sort of character fare in a classic high fantasy world? Mm. With you know, Wizards and Dragons and Dirty Work at the Crossroads. So I binned the definitive blockbuster fantasy masterwork, and that was quite something to do. And started again with a blank page and wrote the book that ultimately became the The, the Thief's Gamble, which was my first novel published in
0: 1999. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 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 you're writing this new book now for the for the for the first time, this fresh book. And at what point did you think? this is a correct, you know, this feels better. This is the one which is going I'm going to have success with. Or did you Or did you think this is just as good? What, what was your mind at?
2: With, with Thief gamble?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, it felt right from the start. Okay. Because I wasn't trying to tick boxes. That was the big mistake that I'd done with the definitive blockbuster fantasy masterwork. Yeah, you know, I thought I had to write everything that I was reading. Yeah. Yeah. I had to yeah. pick the boxes. Whereas um once I started r- writing what became thief, it flowed much better, it came much more naturally. Um yeah, I mean, and I the more I got into it, the more I thought, you know what, this is this is gonna go somewhere. Um and I let I I sort of got feedback from friends and family. Um If you're looking for feedback, these have to be friends and family who will be absolutely and mercilessly honest with you. Yeah.
1: yeah,
2: You know, and... uh,
1: (laughs) Which can be hard to find. (laughs)
2: Which can be hard to find. Not in my family. Um, (laughs) I uh, I was sending my sister um, chunks of the manuscript, and she went on holiday with my mum and stepdad. And my mum, who was an English teacher, um, sort of started picking up the bits of manuscript, yeah. Once Rachel had written read the chapter, my mum would pick it up and read it. My mum reads a lot faster than my sister. So she was sort of chiving her, where's the next bit? Where's the next bit? And she she rang me up and she said, you yeah, know, it was just like reading a real book. <laughs> and it's one <laughs> the of those things. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of those things you're thinking, ah, cheers. Um but actually because yeah, knowing my mum and her background, I thought, you know what? you know if I if I can sell it as a real book to her because uh, you know she yeah I love my mum and all the rest of it but she's never been like, oh anything you do is wonderful darling mm-hmm. she's always had very high standards for herself she's always had very high standards for me and the rest of it you know my brothers and sister and I thought right actually you know what I've probably got something here because you know m- my mum will never kid kid me along if she doesn't think I'm what well, I've Excuse me. What I'm doing is worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and I think I'm right in saying that with that one, you actually ended up finding a publisher. Be- was it before you had an agent? It was yes. through a contact that, yeah. that you had made. Yeah.
2: Yes. Um, basically, I'd left Oscars by then because of second child. But um, one of the people I got uh, to read it to give me an absolutely truthful and honest response was one of my former colleagues mm-hmm. and she passed it to one of the reps because this was in the days when reps still visited the shop mm-hmm. he read it and he passed it on to a commissioning editor now on one level that sounds like old. Oh, well, it's not what you can do it's who you know mm-hmm. but nobody in that chain would have risked their professional credibility if they didn't think the book was yeah. up to the required standard yeah. So yes that's that's how that got there and i got offered a contract and I read the contract and I didn't sign the contract because I had, when I, having worked in personnel management, I knew contracts and I knew contract law. And also, I'd, even by then, I'd heard of the Society of Authors mm. who I got in touch with and I said, about this contract. And they said, yeah, let's talk about that. So when I sent the letter back, I sent back a letter saying, here are the clauses we will add. Here are the clauses we will delete and here are the clauses we will amend. Because one of the biggest mistakes a new writer can make is just signing the first offer that comes along. There are absolute horror stories Um, because the vast majority of people in this business are honest and decent. Mm -hmm. Some of them are better organized than others, but there are sharks and charlatans out there. And any time you get an offer, you need professional advice. The Society of Authors will give it free. Um, you Once you've got a co- contract clutched in your little sticky hand, that is a good time to approach agents. I mean, I did that later on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, always get a professional perspective on a contract that you're you're offered. And hard as it is, always be ready to walk away. Subsequently, down the line, I mean, we're talking, you know, I've been in this business for 25 years. Um must have been seven or eight years ago. I had a new project. I got offered a contract for it. I read it and thought, "Hmm." Referred it to the site of authors who went, "Yeah, no." And so I turned it down. And I can't name and shame that publisher because they're no longer in business.
3: <laughs> right. Okay.
2: So you right. know. Yeah. So
0: what um, what was the steps in that 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 led you to? sign the deal then you know what 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 led you to finding a contract that you were happy with
2: well um basically making sure that the um the rights and responsibilities were balanced on both sides um you know the obligations on me and the obligations on them that the you know what the expectations on me and the expectations on them were equal and balanced and fair because you know it's it's a business publishers will get away with what they think they can get away with and you know part of the business is knowing when to push back and what to push back against which is things like um particularly these days things like reversion clauses um and you know royalty rates and uh you know different rates for sort of different uh formats i mean and also reserving as many rights as you possibly Mm -hmm. can um i mean the industry has changed out of all recognition in the last 25 years um, though weirdly i still come across magazine articles and sort of some Sunday supplement articles on writing novels for fun and profit which seem to think that the royalties uh, the advance and royalties business model where you know you get paid an advance and you write the book and you earn out and you get into royalties. And by the time you're on your sixth book and you've sort of built a readership and all the rest of it, then you you can think about giving up the day job. That business model model is dead as the dodo. Mm -hmm. But so many other things have arrived in that intervening 25 years. Yeah. Um, You know, the the internet for a start, um, that it's a very different business so you one of the most important things i think as a writer is always keeping up to date and keeping current with information there is an awful lot of outdated information out there so keeping current with the state of the business the state of the tech is uh yeah it's an important thing to do
1: yeah i, th- I think that's true because um it's it's a strange industry in the sense that if you know if you're starting out um there's a lot of information out there, but at the same time, a lot of it is quite opaque, and yeah. there's there's a lot of gatekeepers in the way as well. So it, it can, you can find yourself, especially on the internet. Actually, you, I think we spoke to it was Ed McDonald we were speaking to about this, but um you know, you can end up getting advice of people that actually
3: have, have no complete,
1: clue, yeah, yeah. no yeah, clue whatsoever. Absolutely. So we have got to be careful from that side of things as well. Yeah, you know,
2: We're incredibly fortunate in science fiction and fantasy that we have conventions
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, because there will always be um, sessions uh, where writers, you know, we're all happy to talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because when we were coming up, we listened to other writers talking about this stuff. You know, we yeah. benefited from other people's advice, experience and cautionary tales um you know there are uh you know we have british science fiction association british fantasy society horror association science fiction writers of america i think they're still called that um you know all sorts of writer beware fabulous website that every would-be writer should have bookmarked. you know there there are a lot of sources of valid information out there and you know the science fiction community being what it is people are If you're not sure about something, ask, Mm -hmm. and chances Mm -hmm. are people will be able to steer you in the right direction.
1: Yeah, and and I think it's fair to say that since since you got that um, initial contract, you've been incredibly prolific. You not just on the novel writing front, you've done sort of novellas, short stories, and not only in that original universe, but also more contemporary fantasy with the the Green Man series and. Your latest book, of course, uh, which is the retelling of Arthurian legends from a feminist point of view in The Cleaving. Before we get on to The Cleaving, how do you find new ideas to write about? How do you become so prolific uh, in in telling these stories?
2: Ideas are never a problem. Um, (laughs) There are more ideas than I could write books of in a lifetime but one of the tricks is identifying which is a short story idea which mm-hmm. is a idea which is a novel length idea a novel length idea has to be robust it has to be um intricate's probably not the right word multi-layered is probably better mm. something you know um, something with a lot of facets, uh, you know, a short story idea can be a D4, a novel idea needs to be a D20. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and it's basically, I've described this in the past, as finding the kicky ideas until they start fighting back. Um, and, yeah, and again, I bounced them off, um, you know, friends and family. Um, the Leskari Revolution trilogy that I wrote, that that idea had been swirling around for years Um, But I couldn't get a handle. I knew I wanted to write something about, you know, noble rivalry and warfare and dukes competing for the high throne from the point of view of the people getting trampled into the mud. Because, again, find a classic idea. But find a new perspective on it, and that was mm-hmm. the perspective I wanted to um, take on that, take to that. But I couldn't find, and I bounce ideas off my husband. He's like, "No, it's going to be a boring book about peasants covered in mud." <laughs> yeah, but what if I did it? No, it's still a boring book about peasants covered in mud. And a few months later, I, but the scary book. What if no, it's still a boring story about peasants covered in mud. Until I got the idea of bringing in the exiles everyone who had everyone who could leave in you know this is a, a country that's um got sort of um six rival dukes all who want to be high kings so there's this sort of low level warfare that occasionally erupts into a you know bloodshed and battles and the dukes are fine because they can tax the peasants and you know earn money elsewhere but the um ordinary people have got to the point of being mad as hell and decided they're not going to take any more so how's that going to happen? You have to bring the exiles in. All the people who could, can leave a situation like that do leave, and that I started thinking about that, and I ran the idea past my husband, and he said, "Okay, not a boring book about peasants covered in mud. Let's go." Um, so yeah, basically you have it has to be a an idea that is robust enough to stand up to challenge yeah. mm-hmm. and detailed examination.
0: And it, it, it sounds from that that you're quite a planner rather than a pantser.
2: I'm oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Because you kind of have to think through the idea, work out where you'd go with it to get the idea of is it robust enough to take this as a yeah. full length book or is it too short?
2: Yeah. Um. I mean, I always know the end of a book before I start it. Mm-hmm. Um. And, I mean, that has changed over the years. Um, I still plan, I still start with a sheet of A4 paper and basically rough out the skeleton of the book, you know, where the big beats are, where, um, if it's a book that's going to have a subplot, how that's going to interact, you know, there'll be different lines and colored pencils and all the rest of it. And then I'll break that down further into sections and chapters and write notes and all the rest of it. When I started out, those plans were pages long and very very detailed Mm -hmm. and when i found that i was going down a dead end Mm -hmm. i would twist myself into absolute contortions trying to make the idea still fit even though the way that the world had influenced the characters had influenced the plot had influenced the world because it's a sort of a recursive process as, as you get deeper into a book um you know, you start to realize there are factors involved that you hadn't necessarily seen to mm-hmm. that point mm-hmm. um these days i uh, i I've been very fortunate in my editors uh, right from the word go who when sort of giving editorial feedback and the best editors never say this is wrong but they say things like, "Could you explain this? Because that's not quite working for me." You know, maybe this. You know, um... mm-hmm. so it becomes a collaborative process. And certainly by the by the time I'd written my first five, well, in fact, my first four books, I had got a much better understanding of realizing when a story was going off track. Mm-hmm. And on my fifth book, I mean, again, I had my wonderfully detailed plot. And I got about a third of the way through it and there was going to be a thing. And that was in the outline and my editor signed off it. And we were all you know, perfectly happy with the thing. And then I had a different idea because I thought the thing wasn't going to work. And I rang up my editor and said, Tim, yes. You know the thing? Yes. What do you think about pirates instead? <laughs> and he thought you can make it work make it work and by that stage I had enough experience and enough confidence and other people had demonstrated sufficient confidence in me that I thought right okay that's the way to go Um, and so sort of subsequently to that I am much better at not wasting time pursuing uh, an idea that ultimately isn't going to work I'll slam on the brakes stop pause think and find the way I want to go which is normally more of a challenge in the actual writing i've found but always ends up with a better book
1: mm-hmm. and and you know that, that's interesting because when you give it when you're giving a pitch or something to a publisher or to an editor um and it sounds like obviously you're giving particularly detailed pitches to them how how open are they to changes obviously he was open to that change there but you know how, if you if you turned around and said look I've tried to write this and it's actually going in a completely different direction. The ending's going to be completely different. Everything's going to be completely different. Is that, does, will that ever cause an issue for an author?
2: I can only speak with the, about me and my own experiences, mm-hmm. um, which are generally that editors, basically editors want to see the best possible book. Mm-hmm. And if that's going to make for a better book, then they'll be happy. Um, and even editors I haven't worked for, that is very much the vibe I've always got from them. Mm. Um, and I think it's one of those things that if you if you are reliable, consistent, um, if, they, you know, if they know that you have a solid track record about uh, turning out read, you know, readable books, yeah, um, they'll go with you. One of the I mean one of the things about this business is basically you be professional and be businesslike.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a. a it, it seems like a very simple point, but I think it's something that is is often missed yeah. actually. Um, and and in that process of you know you've got your detailed plans, albeit now you're more uh, open to much sort more of stop. Fluid. Yeah. yeah, much more fluid. Um, how does that lead to, in what does it lead to in terms of a first draft and revising? Is your first draft quite clean? Do you revise as you go, or Does it sort of come together in the revision process?
2: I I do write. I write two drafts. I write a first and a final. My first drafts are pretty clean because I start each writing session by reading back what I wrote the previous day, and I'll do a certain amount of tidying up and line editing um, as I do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a thing I've been working on today, um, yesterday evening, I realised that actually the person – this is the new Green Man book – one person had driven the characters to a place and actually they really needed to use the other person's car. Right. So basically I've, the session I've done today has been checking that every instance of a Land Rover gets changed to Toyota, <laughs> um, but also, and that has implications about who's sitting and where in the vehicle and this, that, and the other. Um, so yeah, my first drafts are pretty clean, but they will need work. They will always need work because the process of writing is so much slower than the process of reading.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, And so there will be bits that are overwritten, you know, um a long time ago, something I was writing, um, somebody was you know traveling on a train from London into the country, into the Cotswolds. And I read this back. And in the course of what I've written over the course of a week, I mentioned this woman's gloves four times. Um reading it back. No, we do not need to care of <laughs> that she's got a pair of gloves on four times. Yep. Once is enough. So the there's just the process of writing is that much slower. You there yeah. is inevitably repetition. Yeah. One of the yeah. things that emerges in the course of writing a book for me are the underlying themes. I don't ever write with a theme in mind because mm-hmm. um having worked in bookselling, particularly having been Um, the children's section bookseller because i had kids books with an improving moral message are deathly dull to read and they must be even worse to write but underlying themes do emerge through the course of a book and occasionally you think yeah i better dial that back a bit um i've been writing a book about that involved a fair amount of warfare during one or other of the gulf wars and reading it back i thought yeah we don't actually need to know this much about logistics mm. um because it was obviously something i'd had on my <laughs> mind listening to the news when i had been writing that particular chapter and it was just you know um one of the things that my husband has always been very good at is marginal notes saying this is boring why do i need to know it um so you yeah, know there will be things I'm loving the bluntness that people around you just give advice i'm very fortunate i am very fortunate (laughs) um you've got to have a. you've got to you've got to have a peculiar combination of a thick skin and willingness to listen Mm -hmm. yeah when you're sort of developing your craft skills as a writer um yeah so the the final draft and also as you work through something um you will see connections and um things that you think oh actually you know this thing that happens in chapter 18 there's a thing i can foreground in chapter three and people are gonna think i'm a genius yeah (laughs) so yeah that's that's the process for me and then um final draft goes to an editor and the editor will see things you have not seen things you have missed they will see areas that could benefit they'll they'll see because yeah you will understand the reasoning you will know a b c d Mm -hmm. all the steps are there the editor somebody who is not plugged into your brain will spot the bits where you're actually going a b and straight to d Mm -hmm. and c is not sufficiently clear for somebody who is not looking through your eyes yeah um, so then there will be the third pass with for editorial feedback, and hopefully by that stage we've got a book.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of books, the cleaving is your yeah. latest one. Uh, the nice little seamless segue—I thought that was quite good there—and um, <laughs> that's out next month, April twenty twenty-three. Time mm-hmm. of recording. Uh, so why don't you tell us what it's about?
2: Well, it's an Arthurian retelling that uh the from the a female centered viewpoint and this arose in a very interesting way because um 10 years ago 20 years ago if you'd ever asked me yeah i'm going to write an Arthurian novel Jules," i'd have said no because we know the story we know how it ends and it's not well and um, a couple of years ago now, I was talking to Simon Spanton, who I've known, I've not worked for him or with him, but we've known each other through the convention circuit, you know, sat and had chats and all the rest of it. And he got in touch and said, you ever thought about writing Arthurian retelling rules? And I said, no. And he said, "Did you a reason why not? Well, overarching patriarchy, rape culture, dead hand of the toxic masculinity how many reasons do you want he said oh good i had your um and he said well you know do you think you could do, give us a feminist take on it because i am uh, known fairly well in science fiction and fantasy circles for being fairly unapologetically feminist and i thought now the timing of this was really interesting because i've been writing the green man's challenge which not isn't a spoiler because it's on the back cover copy involves giants in British legend, and reading up on giants in British legend, I'd actually been reading a fair amount of the stuff about the Matter of Britain and the Arthurian cycle because it's all interwoven. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, if you'd asked me that two years previously, I wouldn't have had the same material at my fingertips. Which to say, it was a very interesting case of timing, and I thought. Well, it's an interesting challenge maybe i could think about it and i talked to my agent max and he said yeah that's an interesting challenge what do you think about it so i went and looked back at the some of the source material that i had read recently and some of the source material i hadn't particularly mallory mort dartha however you're supposed to pronounce that i'm not never been sure and started looking at the women in the narrative and realized that In most of the retellings, of which there have been many, and I have read and watched a great many of them, the women only come in and out of the narrative to be a piece of plot, to Mm -hmm. cause a piece of plot, and they go off stage again, presumably to go and sit in a box. (laughs) And when I started putting together some timelines of where these female characters were and when, I started to see when and how they would overlap and when and how different aspects of the core narrative would impact these women's lives, even though that was never normally centred in the stories that we we are so familiar with. And so the more I looked into it, the more interested I got. So I put together some ideas and um, sent them to Simon. And he came back with, oh, this sounds really interesting. Do you think you can write it? And I said, yes, because by that stage, I really wanted to. Mm.
1: And and when you're when you're, I mean, you've sort of touched on it a bit there. But when you're writing a story in such a well trodden, uh, you know, area yeah. of storytelling, it, it does that. Does that help or hinder? You know, there's a lot of stuff there that you can take that the readers will come into it with some knowledge, which mm-hmm. you can either you take advantage of or subvert in some way or something like that. But um, that could also potentially constrain you yeah. in some way.
2: Yes. Um, it, it cuts both ways because, you know, you've got the, um, the, the structure of the narrative. We all know. Arthur, it's going to go from Arthur being born at Tintagel to bloody slaughter at the field of Camelan. Mm-hmm. That's a given. Between then, even when you go back to the original sources, there are huge numbers of variations on the myth. Um, I mean, you know, is Nimue an independent character in her own right? Or is that the name of the Lady of the Lake? Or is the Lady of the Lake actually called Vivian? Or what? Because there are all these different variations on the Mm. the different themes. Um, Yeah, there are different versions of Morgana's story, so many of those. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started to, to see, actually, there was quite a lot of scope in... Putting together a rounded, psychologically robust, and convincing character for the very the four the four women I chose picked to carry the story through, which is Nimue is a character who's throughout the book, um, and she is magical. Mm-hmm. And then there is uh, Igraine, Arthur's mother, who I have always thought got has had really shabby treatment. Morgana who's had some fairly iffy treatments. Mm -hmm. And then there's Gwynevitt, who's a challenge because she's a good girl, who inexplicably goes bad. And again, a lot of that in the retellings, yeah, what's going on there gets really fudged or glossed over. Mm -hmm. So putting together um, convincing narratives for all of these characters from the female point of view. Because one of the things about women, we talk to each other. We talk to each other and we cooperate. That's why we're so dangerous. Um, And so as I sort of put together all of these ideas, actually the story became, it had that breadth and it, that depth and that unexpected perspective mm-hmm. that is crucial to anything I'm going to write as far as I'm concerned. Then... It did get a bit stickier uh, the closer I got towards the end because I knew the end point. Yes, I always know the end point to a book, but this was not the end point I had chosen. It was an end point that was chosen for me by the constraints of the narrative. And normally as I'm writing a book, I'm heading towards the end. And these days, again, this is going to be my 24th novel. Um, I've been doing this a while and I have learned to trust the process. So that I will, you know, even if I haven't ne- these days necessarily got all of the, see how all the pieces fit together. By the time I arrive there, I will see that. Yeah. And with this work, I was getting closer and closer and closer to the end and thinking, um, <laughs> yeah, with all due credit to John Borman and all reverence and respect. Yeah, the Battle of Camelot had to be something more than a field of bloody slaughter, otherwise, yeah, you can't end the book on that. So where's the interesting twist going to come? and any time now would be good? and any time, <laughs> yes, really. And I was much, much closer to the end of this book when suddenly everything went click, click, click click, 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 click into place than generally. And I must say, that was a huge relief. And I, I must say, I am also extremely pleased with the way that everything suddenly came together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was like one of those sort of puzzle boxes mm-hmm. where you move something and suddenly everything fits yeah. into place. Yeah. Uh, at which point you think, ha, I'm a genius. Well, <laughs> people are probably going to think I'm a genius or not, but uh, it's very, very satisfying when that happens. So, yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting creative exercise. And actually, um, it was interesting because my relationship to this book, I'm very proud of it. I worked very hard on it. But it's not... It's not... I I don't want to say my baby because that sounds twee and... Yeah, that's not me. Mm -hmm. But it's not my own original creation. It's my perspective on a piece of universal cultural history. In that sense, it was much more like writing for something like Doctor Who or Star Trek or Star Wars Um, because, you know, you're working in a tradition that a lot of people have worked on and you're giving your own perspective on it. It is quite – you have I have a different emotional relationship to this book than I do to things that are entirely of my own creation. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can
0: see that, yeah. And, yeah. and do you think that, you know, looking at the wider genre – you know, over the last few years, we've seen fantasy and sci-fi perhaps have a kind of wider acceptance or, or, or a wider readership and and maybe moving away from that kind of niche, judgy part of the literary spectrum it once sat on. Is it more accepted? Is it more read?
2: It depends who you're talking to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, the literary establishment are still mm-hmm. incredibly snobby about it. Yeah, try getting on a literary festival program, <laughs> <Very erotic. laughs> Who cares? Um, we have the convention circuit. Um, people are keen. Film and TV adaptations have done wonders for the genre, yeah. um, bringing it to the mainstream and yeah. showing that actually you can have deep, com- complicated, complex, psychologically intriguing narratives that also have wizards and dragons. Yeah, totally. Um and so yeah there are some brilliant things out on the screen which have brought fantasy to a much bigger audience um the other thing that we've got going on is you know when i started out uh, when i started reading um you know fantasy in the late 70s early 80s it was post-tolkien formulaic and that was fine because the genre was sort of finding its feet and seeing where it could go mm-hmm. um and then you got the likes of david gemmell Coming in and ripping up that rule book. Um, and other writers followed in that tradition, and women writers started following in that tradition. You had Melanie Ron, Elizabeth Moon. Um, and now, and so you know, genre solidified, you know, got its house in order and became a good, solid, robust genre. And what's happened recently is it's expanded again in all directions you've got people from many different cultures writing uh drawing on their own literary traditions whether that's um uh you know malaysian you've got writers like zen cho you've got um Mm -hmm. african sources of uh, inspiration native american sources of uh, inspiration middle eastern sources of inspiration And these are all working with the classic fantasy themes, but bringing a whole new set of uh, ideas and settings and characters and monsters and a whole new set of perspectives, um, which has enriched and broadened the genre out of all recognition, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. The other thing that's going on is we're starting to interrogate the origins of the genre. You've got people writing books in terror looking back at folklore. Because yeah. you know, we, everybody thinks fantasy started with Tolkien. Well, yeah, but no. Because actually it's got the genre's got its roots in the popular literature of the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got things like uh Jules Vannes and Edith Nesbitt, and though she was a strictly speaking, a Um, but also things like H. Ryder Haggard and you know, King Solomon's Minds, all of that and yeah. sensation literature. Mm-hmm. We, a lot of it doesn't re reading because oh dear <laughs> um the arthurian cycle again is something that people are looking at and i think that's in it enriches the genre because we're starting to look at those sources critically mm-hmm. um one of the re- one of the reasons that i wrote this book and one of the reasons i found this book so interesting to write was a lot of the classic cliches if you will you know the white knight on his horse and the damsel in distress mm-hmm have been carried through from a lot of these epic tales yes. of high adventure and not necessarily interrogated. And interrogating the uh, influence of the Arthurian myth on epic fantasy was actually one of those things that in, emerged through the course of writing this book that I found increasingly interesting. I think genre was in a really good place at the moment. Nice.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And, and uh, I just wanted to... Um, Touch on the fact that, as as well as writing, you've sort of um, spoken about this uh, earlier on. But you're you're very embedded in the writing scene. You you attend conventions and festivals, and you've judged some of the biggest prizes, World Fantasy Awards, Arthur C. Clarke Awards, yeah. and things like that. And first, how in earth do you find the time while also while also doing the writing that you do? But also, is it important in your view for? more experienced writers to go to these things and interact with the sort of up-and-coming writers and and, and help the, the next generation of writers develop?
2: The way you manage judging a competition is it helps if you read insanely fast, which I do, mm-hmm. um, because I started learning... Uh, I learned to read when I was three. I, um, and I did a very, very intensive reading reading-intensive degree course so i read very very fast um also when you're judging a competition you have to ruthlessly triage yeah which is um basically you know my process was sort the books into likely contenders probably not a contender but definitely interesting yeah probably not going to make the grade dregs and duffers everything got looked at everything gets looked at but by the time i'm into the hmm, probably not box i i'll give a book 100 pages to convince me to carry yeah. on reading yeah. some of them i get about 50 pages in and no others <laughs> i'll get to 100 pages and think it's not going to make the list but it's a cracking read so i'll put that to one yeah. side and come back to it later um it's important i think to have a a finger on the pulse of what the genre is doing and where the genre is going. Yeah. and that's one of the things you get from conventions. even if you don't read books by everybody who you hear speaking, you get to hear how what people are thinking and the the trends. you get to hear read what readers are interested in, what readers mm. are looking for, um all of which is useful. you know it's also a grist to the mill. Um, I, yeah, I, I I have always found it very productive, very rewarding. And i don't think i've ever been to an event where i haven't heard something that has solved a problem for something i'm currently working on Mm -hmm. um as far as readers writers giving back and helping younger readers uh sort of aspiring writers yeah writers rather yes and no i mean i'm always happy to talk about my process but I don't ever expect anyone to think I am telling them the way they must Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Um, I have studied since 1983. I've studied martial art called Aikido. And Aikido is interesting because it's not a competitive martial art. Everybody trains together. You, the, you are improving your skills. And the only person you're measuring yourself against is yourself. Mm-hmm. So basically, Yeah, all grades, all ages, all heights, weights, and the rest of it, we all train together. Now, if I go to a class, I go to a demonstration, and a young, fit, 20-something, six-foot-four black belt is explaining his take on a particular technique, I will look at that, and I will think, I am not a young, fit, 20-something, six-foot-four male black belt. I am a nearly 60-year-old five foot six gray head wearing glasses lady black belt so I will look at what he's doing and the bits that I can see of his technique that I can use that I can adapt that, I, that will improve my Aikido those are the bits I'll take yeah. out in that course um the bits that aren't relevant to me maybe will be relevant to other people great that's the whole point of hearing what other people do seeing what other people do seeing these things demonstrated and explained um, so I, I'm gravely suspicious of anybody peddling, this is the way to fame and fortune writing. Mm-hmm. Follow my roadmap, pay me a lot of money, and I yeah. promise you success. Because that's just not how it works. If you're when you're learning to write, when you're honing your craft skills, some things will come naturally, some things you will find more difficult. So basically I you know, for me personally, I find as, get as many perspectives on something as I can, and I find the bits that resonate with me; those are the bits I can use and add to my own skill set.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think yeah. I think it's. A good sense, I, I suppose I was I was more yeah asking you know being open to questions and stuff from aspiring authors rather than saying this is how you should um, well. You should yeah,
2: write. I'm, I'm always happy to answer questions. Occasionally, it'll be. Ugh. Nobody's ever asked me that before. What do you have to think about that? And you know, I may or may not come back with a coherent answer. But it's yeah. always it's always interesting to find out what people want to know.
1: hmm Absolutely. And and as well as fantasy, um you mentioned earlier that, you know, you read across genres, your, you're quite an avid, I think, uh, crime and thriller reader. Yeah. Um would you ever want to write a, no, a you know, a completely straight um thriller or crime novel like that?
2: Well, I have written three murder mysteries oh, okay. set in Greece. Um Greece. They are uh, Shadows of Athens, Scorpions in Corinth, and Justice for Athena. I think is the third one. Um, and that they they're written as J M Alvey A L V E Y. Okay. And that was one of those instances where it became a hideous cautionary tale of everything <laughs> that can go wrong in publishing and it was the sort of experience which if i'd had it when i if i'd had that experience when i was setting out i probably would have given up completely because the project lost two editors inside 6 months due to corporate reorganization mm. um what i was being told and what was actually going on turned out not to tally at all same with what my agent was being told and what was actually going on turned out not to tally at all oh. and basically the whole mess it got to the point where the whole mess was kicked upstairs to somebody i'd never even spoken to who cancelled the whole project six weeks before the second book was published Oh, God. oh God, which It was. It was an absolute screaming nightmare. I have never been so close to just quitting writing completely. Uh If I hadn't also been writing the Green Man books at the same time, which were getting increasingly popular and people were very keen to read the next one. Yeah, I would have thrown up my hands and walked away. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the, the perspective of having been in this industry for such a long time, as I say, I signed my first book contract 25 years ago. Over the years, I've had bad luck. Everybody has bad luck. Bad timing happens. Pro tip, don't have a book come out the week. Borders goes bankrupt. <laughs> um, and occasionally, very occasionally, very rarely, you find yourself dealing with somebody in ba- who's dealing with you in bad faith. When all of those things collide, it's catastrophic. And that's what happened there. But it's that's not the end of the story, thanks to the miracles of modern technology. Because that was a two book deal as i say they binned the entire thing somebody i would never even spoken to binned the entire thing six weeks before the second book was due out i have subsequently learned that they slashed the print run and it's a whole thing Mm -hmm. but when the dust settled because i was able to point to bits of my contract and say seriously when the dust settled i got all my rights back in a year and so my agent then sold the ebook rights for the first two books to uh, a different publisher uh ebook only. I wrote a third book because I'd already had it planned, and mm. they put that out as well um due to the absolute shambles that the first publisher made of this project, that's been an uphill struggle. uh I mean they're selling they're selling quite well, and people are enjoying them hugely and want to see more of them we haven't yet reached the point where it's worth any, we haven't reached the tipping point where the, the, that publisher has come back to me and said, okay, let's have another one. But mm-hmm. you never know. And to even 10 years ago, that couldn't have happened. Yep. Um, but ebook direct publishing now means that even when things do go catastrophically wrong, as a writer, you have opportunities. I'll really, salv- yeah. salvage yeah. things in yeah. the wreckage. But yes, hmm. <laughs> and,
1: and 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 so um we've got the, the cleaving coming out next yes. month and then what what is next in the pipeline you said you were working on another green man
2: oh, i'm working book. on another green man book um because i had a really interesting idea about throwing up a whole new set of challenges for Dan. um oh, a titular character our oh, central character in there so i'm having great fun with that at the moment. I, as well as that i'm genuinely not sure um one of the things about writing the cleaving was i got back to good old swords and sorcery mm-hmm. which is where i started out with the thief's gamble um yeah magic swords and um shenanigans uh and creepy magic and things like that and i've had such great fun writing that that um yeah maybe it's maybe it's time to go back to that for a bit don't know we'll see nice excellent so.
1: was the last book that you read
2: um well i am in the middle of reading furious heaven by kate elliott which is completely fantastic um and before that i read one or other of the lee child jack reachers just as a um, disengaged brain and past the popcorn read yeah
0: and uh what about the last film that you watched
2: that would have been um black panther wakanda forever
0: oh yeah Uh, what was your thoughts on
2: that I thought it was interesting. Um, I I don't tend to be hypercritical about these things because I don't think they're designed to bear the weight of detailed criticism that sometimes Mm -hmm. people impose on them. Um, I thought it was very well done. Um, And I... As as a stepping stone from the yeah, a very, very difficult situation for the writers yeah, absolutely. to manage. I yeah. mean, the loss of Chadwick, Chadwick Bozeman is just absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Um, so I'm very interested to see what happens next with that. Uh it, yeah, it was it was a good entertaining movie, um, because I didn't demand anything more of it than that.
0: Yeah, quite a sensible right.
1: approach. And uh, what about the last TV show that you watched or are watching?
2: um we're currently uh working our way through season 19 of ncis again all right the end okay, of the nice. day um disengage, brain, disengage yeah. brain and pass the popcorn um <laughs> you know uh the best thing i've watched recently was andal yeah oh yeah that was fantastic that was absolutely superb and the thing that absolutely hit me squarely between the eyes was you know we're so used to seeing andy's circus you know, king of mocap mm. with different people's faces. You forget actually what a house good actor yeah, he is when he's able to wear his own face. Yeah, um, I mean that. I am so looking forward to seeing what they do next with that. Yeah, I, no, I thought that was. Probably, I thought that was superb. Really kind of adult
0: sci-fi, didn't. Didn't explain stuff, just kind of went with it and all the better for it. Um, And the very, very last thing we do, super quick fire, either or, and I always say there's no right answer here apart from one, but we'll start off with uh, Terry Pratchett or Robin Hobb.
3: Oh! Oh, that's horrible! Um, Robin
2: Hobb?
3: Fair enough. Okay. That is
2: that is evil. <laughs> I've probably got more books by those two writers than anyone else. Uh,
1: TV or cinema?
2: TV, these days.
0: Um, night Owl or Early Bird?
2: Night Owl. I can work as late as I need, but yeah, don't try and expect sense out of me before nine o'clock in the morning.
1: <laughs> uh, music or no music when you're writing?
2: Oh, no music. No music at all. Um... Uh, the only time I have music on is if there's something like roadworks going on. <laughs> yeah.
3: that
2: I, I need a, cl- a closer noise to ignore. Yeah. Um, any time I have, it, I've had music on with lyrics. They've ended up in the book. <laughs> uh,
0: and the last one, real book or ebook?
2: Either or. or if um, you had to pick,
0: if you had to pick one, you've got a gun to your head, and it's you've got to give me an I, answer. Well,
2: here. I just point out i am a third damn black belt i'd take the gun off here <laughs> um ebook it, if it absolutely had to be one or the other ebook that's... um because you know basically i've got you know 200 odd things queued up waiting to be read on my tablet <laughs> um and there is no more room in the house for any more books that's uh, these one of the many action. reasons why
0: ebooks are just
3: fantastic yes.
2: yeah yeah I agree. uh Great. we have as many books in this house as it is possible for this house to hold to <laughs> to
1: well thanks very much to Juliet for coming on there and you know I thought it was interesting that even an author as experienced and lauded as Juliet could have the sort of bad experience that she had with that publisher for, in relation to the crime yeah. that she'd written and you know it just goes to show i suppose a how carefully you need to be when you know looking at contracts and selecting your publisher because i think especially for new authors any publisher that's offering you a deal you'll be desperate to take it and as she said there in in relation to contracts sometimes you need to be prepared to walk away if it's if it's not right for yeah. you
0: i mean we we've sort of chatted about this before i guess more akin to leaving an agent i suppose but that kind of feeling of as you say you've you you jumped through all the hoops for years and then someone waves a thing in your face and says here's your key and you jump at it and you don't want to let it go because it's taking you so long to get there and i think sometimes you're blinded by that but yeah you absolutely you know you have to do what's right for you and 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 if that means walking away that means walking away
1: yeah I i think that's right but um as as we said at the start, Juliet's latest book, The Cleaving, is now out. So um, we'll put a link in the podcast description so you can pick that and her other books up. But thanks again to Juliet for coming on to the podcast. And next week, we've got another great guest on the podcast. Yeah,
0: next week, we're chatting with the awesome Nick Harkaway, who um, has written a, a number of really interesting kind of... Um, speculative, sci-fi, thrillery, political—you uh, know, weird, uh, really interesting kind of uh, cross genres cross-genres, the exactly yeah, yeah. What I'm looking for. Um, his latest book is Titanium Noir, uh, and it's a futuristic crime thriller, that kind of noir feel, but in a futuristic setting. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 really cool, and it's a really interesting chat. And he's got a lot of really really good uh, advice and insight into the industry.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It was a really good chat, and I'm I'm really enjoying Titanium Noir. I'm I'm reading it just now, really sort of sort of cyberpunk noir type idea almost going on there. So, um, yeah, it's a great chat. So please do tune in for that one. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please do take the time to rate and review us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a thumbs up if you're listening to this on YouTube subscribe follow all of these things that helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast
0: absolutely and if you want to get in touch there are a number of ways to do that now one twitter you can reach us uh, by sending a tweet in the twitter machine to at uk page one you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk you can catch us on mastodon which is writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod or you can check out our youtube channel at page one podcast and you can watch our videos and you can leave us a little comment there
1: absolutely and if you want to uh, give us a question to ask rj at our live recording at Mm. chimera next week then please do that i'm not promising we'll ask your question but we'll certainly read it and and see if it's safe to ask there's
0: less work for us to have to do i'm happy to exactly yeah
1: (laughs) exactly whatever the question (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah. Uh, but otherwise have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode
0: see you later We'll